Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. So as a regular teacher of the tradition, sometimes teaching the tradition for the tradition's sake, and sometimes finding in the tradition that which you need to think about, and sometimes both simultaneously, Every once in a while, I have a week like this where I think when I'm starting to study the Parsha in order to teach it, I'm just going to take it where it's going to organically go. And then once I realized where I arrived at, I realized given the week that I had, or at least a couple of the encounters that a week that I had, the text was directing me or I, or, or I was sort of unconsciously directing myself to find this kind of material, right? It, it, and it, that'll come clear in a little bit, meaning I think that the material that I'm going to teach today is hopefully um, interesting and, and, and uh, informative to anyone, but I realized once I got through a certain text that I was unconsciously searching for material that was going to help me process through a couple of encounters that I had this week. Um, I think when we do that too much in the text, we use the text as a prop uh, and using the text to inform our lives interactions is a holy thing using it as a prop um, reduces it but sometimes it's saying the exact things that we need to hear and that is another way of understanding uh eternal holiness um what we're going to do is we're going to read a verse we're going to get to a rashi in the verse we're going to spend a considerable amount of time on the original midrashic text that rashi drew from we're going to go on a biblical a little meandering through the biblical text that the Midrash brings, and then one more Hasidic text at the end, just so you, you can get a sense of where we're going with this. Uh, and we start with the opening lines of Parshat Vayigash that uh, Marshall read before. The Parsha um, begins resolving a cliffhanger from the end of the previous week, right? That Benjamin is in the prison, and the brothers have to figure out you know, how, how are they going to kind of come to terms with who they are in the presence of this viceroy without knowing that he's Joseph yet. Um, and is this, um, is this all of the awful things they've done so far in their lives coming back to them? How are they going to go back to Jacob having violated the promise that they're going to bring Benjamin back after Jacob specifically said, I'm cons- I've already lost one child, I'm not going to lose another child. It's very tense at the end of Parshat Miketz. And then we begin with this verse. Vayigash elav Yehuda. Yehuda Vaigashed towards him. Vaigash means to approach, to come close. Vayomer, and Yehuda said, Be Adoni. Be is sort of, it, it's, it's probably not necessarily like a declension of the preposition B and the E. Like be on its own would, would mean like within me or to me. It's more here a, um, a term of beseeching. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a version of na. Please, my Lord, my Lord is, re- is referring to the person who does not yet know as Joseph. This is polite biblical talk. May your servant speak, and your servant is me. Right? Judah is speaking to Joseph, he doesn't know as Joseph, and is saying, let your servant, meaning me, uh, let me say a word, in the ears of my Lord, my Lord meaning you, right? So the, neither the first person or the second person is used. 
let not, it's translated here as let not be angry. Literally, may your, may your nostrils not flame upon your servant. Again, your servant meaning me. Ki chamocha, kifaro. The double ka here is hard to render in perfect English because the ka means like. If we try to translate it literally, because like you is like Pharaoh, what it's saying is because you are like Pharaoh, right? It's, you know, every language has a different way of, of, just, of, uh, of articulating these things, right? Put it together, uh, Judah takes it upon himself to be the one who's going to be, uh, achieve the reconciliation. He's using polite language, referring to Pharaoh as, sorry, referring to Joseph as my Lord, referring to himself as your servant. He's requesting to say a few words. He wants to say a few words into this man's ears. He's asking in advance, please don't be angry. And he's um, kind of lifting him up by saying, you're basically a pharaoh. On the surface, any questions or comments uh, on the verse before we look at the Rashi? And I'll, we'll pass around the microphone so that people on the Zoom can hear if anybody wants to add something. Questions, or if you, if you were reading this verse for the first time, and maybe it's your first time looking at it slowly, what jumps out at you? Phrases or content or ideas? Alan and then Gary, hold on. Uh, it's the first word that gets me, vayigash. What does that really mean to approach someone? And how do you do it? Is it, is it in terms of he's approaching you to fight? Is he approaching you to to make a big request to you approaching him what's the purpose of vayigash good and you can ask that question on two levels you can ask the question internal to the story and you can ask the question on the editorial level right on the editorial level as it were why is that word used as opposed to a different word it could have been vayabo it could have just been vayadaber and he spoke why do we have this rather uncommon extra notion that there was an approach and then internal to the story right how is an approach different than a coming? And how is an approach in speaking different than just a speaking? Good. What else? Um, why is he assuming ready that he's going to be angry? Ah, good. But, but you know, sometimes when you um, appease someone in advance by saying, please don't be angry with me, it's a successful tactic because you might soften the ears of the person you're talking to. Sometimes you might put the person on guard, right? The person may not have assumed that anything you were going to say was going to anger them. And if I say to you, don't be angry at me, you know you're about to hear something that is liable to anger you, right. right? So again, you can ask that on two levels. Why does the editor add that in? Why does the Holy One or the editor add it in? And what does it mean inside the narrative of the story that Judah is, is either nervous that he is going to anger him, that's why he says not to, or um, feels that it will, it will be effective to to soften the blow of what he's going to say by saying, I'm, I'm coming as a friend, right? But anything else in the verse itself? Okay. Yes, Marshall. One second, one sec, Marshall. Marshall, hold on. I just noticed that the word Avdachah is mentioned twice and Adonai are mentioned twice. Uh-huh. Good. So if you're just uh, looking at the verse and seeing how words pop up, your servant and my Lord are both uh, uh, present twice in the verse. Good. Let's look at Rashi. Rashi picks up some up on some of the stuff that you were discussing. So Rashi's first comment on the verses: Vayigash elav dot 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 daber aduni. So he picks up, um, and, and those of you in my Rashi class know this: the words in bold at the beginning of a Rashi 
which are the words in the verse upon which Rashi is commenting, are called the Dibure Hamadchil, the opening words. But they, those words are not necessarily words that Rashi bolded, by which I mean, it's a, we are surmising after the fact, based on his comment, that these are the words in the verse he was commenting on. But we don't have in the original Rashi him saying, I'm now commenting on these words. It's just a running commentary. So at some point, an editor of a manuscript said, based on what we're about to say, it must mean that it's this part of the verse he's commenting on. He's commenting on both the notion of the approach and the, this, this interesting phrase, let me say a word, a devar ba'oznei aduni, into the ears of my servant. Rashi says three words. And he's saying three words in Judah's voice, meaning sometimes Rashi kind of is speaking with his voice. Sometimes his comment is entering into the story, almost like a bibliodrama like I that I would do. And he's speaking inside the character of the character. That it's, it's this way this time. Rashi says, it's as if Yehuda was saying, Yikansu dvarai beoznecha. May my words, dvarai, yikansu, enter into, penetrate beoznecha, your ears. What's the force of that? Right? What, what has Rashi added that was not there before? Another way of thinking about this, what notion about the words is Rashi trying to disabuse us of? He's saying, it doesn't mean this, it means this. What is he saying when he says that it means, may my words penetrate? What are you asking someone when you're asking that my words penetrate? Mark, take the mic. Yeah. Um, otherwise, uh, the original could have said, he just said, instead of, I want, you know, I want to put words into your ear. So maybe he's, he's just, he's focusing on what the nature of hearing is as opposed to seeing. Good. Uh, so he, anyway. Good. So he's definitely responding to the fact that the phraseology is interesting, that let a word be said in your ears. If someone says to you, Mark or anyone, before they begin saying something momentous to you, I pray let my words really enter into your ears, what are they asking you to do? To really listen very carefully. What I'm saying is important. Either listen carefully because what I'm saying is important or listen carefully because I'm concerned that You're not going to like, or you're, or you're just, or you're not interested, right? Right. We've all said this to a a, a child at a time or a friend. Like, I, I want you to listen to what I'm saying, to catch their attention, not because they're necessarily not going to like what they hear, but they might be distracted. They just they 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 have other things on their mind. So Rashi says what Judah is saying to to Joseph is in a polite way. Listen carefully, please. This is significant. I know that you have many cases that come before you. Right. I want my word. You're going to want to hear this. It's a version of you're going to want to hear this. Right. It's it's a uh, um, it's it's a plea for attention. And then Rashi, in some ways, balances that with how he understands the Yichar Apecha, may not your nostril flare. Rashi says. Mikan ata lamed from this language. When Ju- uh, Judah says, "May not your nostrils flare," you learn shadiber alav kashot that he spoke to him. Who spoke to who? Judah spoke to Joseph kashot, hardly, uh, harshly. Right? If what Rashi is saying is, if Judah had not spoken rather firmly, 
to a vice president, right, of ancient Egypt, had he been had he spoken gently, he wouldn't have had to request him not to get angry at him. But from the fact that he's asking that this not anger Joseph, it's as if the text is admitting that Judah had some tood, right? Mm-hmm. He had a certain presence. He was demanding, right? So look at Rashidun in two comments. Comment number one, appease. Comment number two, a recognition that he's speaking forcefully, right? Think of any complicated diplomacy, whether it's geopolitical or familial or spousal or between a parent and a child, and think of how significant balancing both of those are. Please listen to me. It's so important that what I say get into your ears. And I'm going to speak very straight because I need to get this off my chest. Please don't be angry at me. But I understand why you would be, which is why I'm requesting that you not be. So Rashi is flooding an enormous amount of what we would consider like psychological insight and how to have a hard conversation into this opening line, which we recognize and read the verse is different than it could have been written. It could have been written simpler. From the fact that it wasn't written simpler, Rashi says there's a lot going on here. Now, there's a lot going on here. There's also a lot more going on in, in at least one of the Midrashim from which Rashi calls. Rashi knew the Midrash by heart, friends, right? And when I say by heart, I really kind of mean by heart. He didn't have, he didn't have Google, right? He knew any, by recall, any reference in the entire Talmud where this story appears, he knew it. And any reference in the Midrash, he knew it. And what he does in each verse of the Torah is basically cull through all of that and deliver the material that he thinks is most interesting. Um, but thanks to modern uh, um, academic texts, we can annotate uh, where Rashi gets his material from. And it's pretty clear, as you're about to see, that Rashi was basing this, but basing this um, a little bit selectively on this Midrash from Breshit Rabbah. What is Breshit Rabbah? Breshit Rabbah is the classic Agadic, meaning narrative Midrash on the Torah. Not, it's not halachic material. It's filling in the, in the space in between the letters for what really was happening in the story. Okay, so this is Breshit Rabbah, chapter 93, uh, number six. Davarachar, another thing, meaning that this is not the first midrash that the Breshi Rabbah says on this verse. Vayigash Elav Yehuda, Judah approached him. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nechemia, Rabbanan. This is a classic a rabbinic way of saying we're about to introduce a machloket or a difference of opinion between several rabbis, and and it's like it's like the um, the, the, the Midrash is laying out what he called the dramatis personae at the beginning of a play. These are the folks who are going to be disagreeing with each other. It's going to be Rabbi Huda against Rabbi Nehemiah against Rabbi Nan, meaning the rest of the rabbis. We, we don't know what they're saying yet. We just, there are the, the players in this uh, machloket, this interaction. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, and interestingly, one of the rabbis commenting on what Yehuda, the character says, is a rabbi Yehuda. That may be a nothing, right? Sometimes cigars are cigars, or sometimes it's interesting that it's the namesake of the character that's speaking. Rabbi Yehuda Mer, Hagasha la milchama. This is going back to what Alan said before, right? One way which you can approach someone in a tense situation is in a warlike stance. He approached him as if he was in battle. He approached him with the uh, outcome to over with a hope to overpower, right? He approached him with muscles flexed. Heichmad atamar, just like it says. Again, this is a classic midrashic text. 
if the word in the verse that we're dealing with that we're trying to understand is vayigash. And we're not sure what vayigash means here. Why don't we look at another place in the Bible where that root is used? And maybe the context is more obvious there. And we can import that context into our context. So we are taken to the second book of Samuel, chapter 10, verse 13. And now we want to go into a little bit of a rabbit hole. So now turn to the second page, and we're going to look at a few verses from the second book of Samuel. So second book of Samuel uh, means that we are uh, deep into the line of kingship in ancient Israel, where after the reign of King David, um, and there's a lot of biblical material here that stretches from about, I don't know, 980, 970 BCE until the eight or 700s, depending on how you, how you historicize the book of Samuel. And we're going to learn about one of the, um, uh, I can't remember if it's a son or a grandson of King David, uh, King, uh, Joab or Yoav. Okay. Vayitsu b'nei Ammon, the Ammonites who were, uh, enemies of ours emerged. Vayarchu milchamaisura, the middle of page two, they, they set up a war, petach hashar, at the entrance to the gate, Aram tsova, um, while the Arameans of the town of Tsova, urachov v'ishtov umacha levadam basadeh, and all these people took separate, um, made separate camps around where Yoav was, uh, was in place of the king. Vayar Yoav, and Yoav, who was the king at the time, saw, ki hayta elav milchama, that he, uh, was facing a battle. Mipanim umeachor, in front of him and behind him. So he's vulnerable and he's putting himself in a warlike situation because people are, are arraying against him. Vayvchar mikol bichurei Israel, he selected from the best soldiers of Israel, and he mustered himself to meet Aram in battle. It almost appears like the beginning of Parshat Vayishlach, where Yaakov and Esav are willing, are setting up to meet each other in battle. Viet Yeter Ha'am, the rest of the troops, the nation, Natan Biad Avshai Achiv, he let Avshai, his brother, um, be responsible for them. And they also arrayed themselves ready for battle. Bayomer, and he, meaning King Joab said, Im techazak Aram bimeni, if the, I'm gonna be the shock troops, if Aram is stronger than I am, Bahaitali lishua, uh, I'm basically gonna rely on you to be my Yeshua, my deliverance. And if they're too strong for you, meaning if, if in my first battle I get overwhelmed, you save me. If in your first battle you get overwhelmed, I'll come save you. Right? Two brothers, uh, running different parts of the same army. Chazak v'nid chazek. You may know that phrase. It's similar to what we say at the end of the book of the, each book of the Torah. It originates in Moshe's charge to Joshua. Let's be strong. Ba'ad amenu, uh, for the sake of our people. Uba'ad are eloheinu, and for the sake of all of the cities of our, of our God. And may God do what's, what's right for us. Vayigash yo'av. And Yoav Vayigashed. It's clear here that what does Vayigash make reference to? War. He started the battle, right? There's no question about whether Vayigash means here, did he go to offer a plea deal? Did he go to offer a, um, a compromise? This is, you know, think of, uh, of Shakespeare and King, uh, King Henry V. Henry just gave, Henry V just gave the pre-war uh, battle cry. The next verb is 
they moved into war, right? Yoav, and the people that was with him, to wage war, against the Aramans, and good news, the Aramans fled, fled in front of him. So, going back to our Midrash, which is the Midrash from which Rashi derives this thing, Rabbi Yehuda says, it's obvious in this source in the book of Samuel, the verb Vayigash means, means to approach for war. We read that back into our context. It means that Judah was not coming to appease, according to Rabbi Yehuda. He was coming with all the force he could muster. He's not going to leave until he extracts Benjamin from the king. He's going to fight power with power. One approach. Yes, Irv. Yeah, we need to give Irv the microphone. You know, we're using words of reconciliation before. This is forceful. Irv. Oh. I'm listening. It's very forceful. You know, saying, I'm coming, I'm coming. Yeah. Flat out. You know, yeah. no, no equivocation. Right. And Rabbi Judah says... When I hear the word Vayigash, I hear that scene, and I, and I lift that scene into our scene, and I see Judah battling for the people, battling for the, his brother, battling for God. Okay, now go to the top of page two. Um, hold on. Yeah, sorry, second line of page two. Rabbi Nechemia says, that is not the only use of Vayigash in the Bible. And just like you can quote a proof text that says that Vayigash means war, I can prove quote a proof text that shows that Vayigash means something else. Rabbi Nechemia Omer, Hagasha Lefius. He came close to appease. By the way, the word appease might actually be related to the Hebrew lefayes, to, um, to, to appease, right? It might be etymologically related. How do I know this? Look at the 14th chapter of Joshua. Let's look at the 14th chapter of Joshua. Go to um, page 3. Okay. There's our verb. It's in plural. The descendants of Judah, which again is also interesting because we're talking about Judah in our scene and the proof text that Rabbi Nehemiah is bringing is from the descendants of Judah. The descendants of Judah approach Joshua. Joshua, in the book of Joshua, plays what primary role? What is Joshua's primary role in the book of Joshua? Successor, and what is he, what's he doing? He's leading in? He's leading a war, right? He, he, he's the commander-in-chief and successor to Moses. The Judahites approach Joshua, Bag Gilgal, at a place called Gilgal, by Yomer Elav, um, Kaleb ben Yufaneh, and Kaleb, which was Joshua's sidekick, said to him, Haknizi ata yadata, uh, sorry, Kaleb uh, ben Yufaneh haknizi, ata yadata et hadabar asher diber Adonai Moshe ish lohim al adotai ve'al adotecha v'kadesh bernea. You remember, Joshua, what God um, gave as an instruction to me through Moses regarding our situation once Moses was going to die. Ben Arba'im Shana Anochi. I was 40 years old at the time. Bishloach Moshe Evadarnai Oti Mikadesh Barnea. When Moses kind of sent me out to spy the land, this is from Parsha Shlachlacha, Leragel Ataaret, to scout the land. Ba'eshev Oto Davar, I returned back the word to him, Kasher Im Levavi, 
based on what I thought was, uh, was, was honest about what I saw. But my other fellow tribesmen who went up into the land with me, they tore out the heart of the people because they came back with a negative report. But I did exactly what God was asked of me. I went and scattered out the land and we brought back a favorable report so that the Israelites would feel positive about entering the land. And Moses swore on that day, Limor, saying, meaning, because I did right, I should get a reward. Uh, the land um, that you're going to walk your foot on, it's going to be to you as an inheritance, and to your children, forever. Because you were loyal to my God, meaning you get a reward. Verse 10. God has kept me alive all these 40 years. Kasher Diber, just as he said, sorry, 45. 45 years. So it's now actually five years after they got into the land of Israel. We're now on top of page four, since God said this to me. El Moshe, Asher Halach Yisrael Bamidbar. They were walking in the desert. 85 years old. I'm still strong. I'm as strong as I was when Moses sent me out to scout the land that we're now fighting for. My strength then is like my strange now, my strength now. To be able to kind of go in and out to battle. All I ask for, I'm finally cashing in my chit. This is my reward. Just give me this mountainous area. That God said, Because you heard on that day, there are these giants then, and these fortified cities. But I will send them out and it'll be yours. So basically, what's happened in the story is the descendants of Judah are, sa- are saying, um, we, des- we did what we were supposed to do 45 years ago. Joseph, uh, J- Caleb um, did exactly what was asked of him. I want my reward. My reward is this land, which had been possessed with the giants, but we dispossessed them. And all this began with a vayig shoe. This is not a hagashah for war. This is a Hagashah for pleading, right? They approach Joshua, who is the leader of the time, saying, please, let me speak reasonably to you, right? I've earned this, right? It's a very, very different stance than what we read in the book of Samuel. Lift that up from this context, as Rabbi Nechami wants to do. Put it into our context, and you have Judah not flexing his muscles in front of Joseph, whom he doesn't know as Joseph, but rather saying, please, I'm asking for something reasonable. Just listen to me, and you will understand that what I'm asking for has merit. Okay. Alan? If he's asking for something that's going to be reasonable, how is that viewed as something that's going to give rise to anger? In terms of the next line, that, that don't, don't be angry with me? Yeah. Right, so... If we read this as he's the, it's a hagashah for war, you understand that the phrase don't be angry with me means don't be angry with me even though the stance I'm taking might anger you. 
if you understand it to be appeasement, then you understand that next line being, even if you might be conditioned to be angry towards someone who comes in front of you with more a strong presence, there's no reason to be angry. I'm not asking for anything hard. I'm speaking heart to heart here, right? There, there are two tones of voices with which one might say, don't be angry with me. And how you use, what tone you use might impact how the person responds, right? That's two of the three, okay? Go back now to the top of page two. One, two, three, four, five, lie down the Hebrew middle line. Rabbanan Amre, the rest of the sages says, he wasn't approaching for war. He wasn't approaching to appease with soft words. Hagasha litfila. He was approaching for prayer because we have another context where guess what? This verb is used and the verb is used not for war, not for appeasement, but for tefillah. Let's look at the source that begins on the bottom of page four. First book of Kings, chapter 18, one of the many stories of Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet. We know of Eliyahu because he appears uh, in, a, in a few minutes in Abdallah and he appears on Pesach night uh, and he appears at a bris, but there are tremendously interesting biblical stories about what Eliyahu did. Okay, so here we go. Vayomer Eliyahu, Elijah said, l'cholaam, to all the people there, Geshu Eli, there's our root, come closer to me. Vayigshu cholaam, and they all came. Doesn't look like they were coming for war. Doesn't look like they were coming for appeasement. et mizbach Adonai harus. This is happening at, immediately after a, 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 a local altar had been desecrated. And uh, he. it's interesting that the verb is vayirapeh, which we think of as a medical healing, but he healed or he fixed the altar that had been damaged. He took 12 stones. Like the number of tribes of Jacob. Just as God had said, Israel is going to be your name. So he's, he, he's kind of collecting stones to represent the very tribe that he is trying to bring together. He turned those 12 stones representing the tribes into an altar. He made kind of a, an open trench that was, uh, that could fill two seahs. It's a, it's a dry measure of seeds. A saviv around the altar. By he set up the wood. By uh, and he um, did surgery on. But really, what it means is that he cut up the bowl for the sacrifice. By he put the meat on the wood. By and he said to everyone there, milu arba'ah fill up four uh, jugs of water. By itzku al haula, pour it all over the sacrifice. On the wood, he said, "Do it a second time." By Yishnu, and they did it a second time. By Yomer Shaleshu, he said, "Do it a third time." Did it a third time. By the water filled the area around the altar. and the trench filled with water. By Hiba and when it was time to offer up the offering, remember the word mincha originally does not mean an afternoon prayer service; it means a, a offering or a gift. Vayigash, there's our verb again. Elijah, Eliyahu, Hanavi. Elijah the prophet came. Vayomer, and he said, Adonai Elohai, Elohei Abraham Yitzchak Yisrael, the God of Abraham Isaac. It's interesting; it's not Jacob mentioned here, but Yisrael. Hayom Yivada. Today it's going to be known. Ki Ata Elohim Yisrael that you are the God of Israel. Vani Avdecha, I'm your servant. 
Asiti at Kol Hadvar Ima'ela. I did all these things essentially as you asked. So the rabbis heard their colleague, Rabbi Judah says, he was approaching for war from our context over there. And they heard Rabbi Nehemiah saying he was approaching to appease, as we saw in the book of Joshua. And they said, no, there's another approaching that I want to connect this to. He was approaching to Davin. He was approaching to pray. And I think the rabbis are saying, not that he was approaching to pray as if uh, jo Joseph is a god, but he was approaching in a prayerful way. He was, or, or you could say that he, he, did a, he did a prayer before he actually approached, because sometimes it's how you prepare for a challenging encounter that impacts the outcome of the encounter. Alan? Yeah. There's more to this story. There was, isn't this really like some sort of dispute between, among, between the Jews and another group of people about whether or not it was going to be done? He says, here, you know, I'm going to do, yeah, they couldn't, they were trying to do these other dances to get the fire going. Different, different chapter. Different. I mean, Elijah does a lot of that too, but th that specific story is a different chapter of, of the Book of Kings. Ah, yeah. okay. It just seems very familiar. Yeah. Um, Elijah does a lot of that, but the, the specific story you're thinking about is a different chapter. Um, just to, t just to bring where we are and then we're going to, we're going to close up. Rashi chose, um, without attribution to read the verse as meaning either or both that Judah was saying, let my words enter into your, into your ears. That sounds like an appeasement or, uh, Judah was speaking harshly to him, which is why he had to say, please don't get angry with me. That sounds like he was preparing for war. And in the Midrash, we had the third example of he was approaching prayerfully. With that in mind, look at the last source in the bottom of a chapter, uh, page five. This is the commentary of Rabbi David of Kutsk. He's the son of the Kutsk Rebbe. He himself was also a Kutsk Rebbe. When you think of the Kutsk Rebbe, it's not him. This is his son. But he was a sage in his own right. And this is his commentary on this uh, verse. So now look at the third line in Hebrew on page five. And the second paragraph. Lechora, at face value, milat elav, the word elav, miuteret, is extraneous. Which word elav? If you want to peek back into the top of page one, the verse has two words that opens up that are interesting. Vayigash, that verb, and then the elav. Because you could have read, Vayigash Yehuda, Judah approached, right? This is a classic response to, uh, to find extraneousness in the verse. He approached him. Well, where else would have approached? Obviously approached him. So why do we need the to him, the elav? It's extraneous. We have Sharlomar, it's possible to say, She'elav, the word to him, kavanato, what's intended by it? El atzmo. He, Judah, approached himself. The elav is not Joseph, it's himself. Yehuda chazar al-dvarav. Judah repeated himself. This is not the first time Judah asked Joseph to let them free. This is, remember, the story begins in a cliffhanger. This is the second time. And he uses almost the exact same words. Judah repeats himself. Befam hashniyah, and the second time, lifnei uh, Yosef, the same, second time he's saying these words in front of Joseph, ki amar et hadvarim behitragshut yitera. Because the second time, he said his, his these almost exact same words, behitragshut yitera, with extra sensitive emotionality, meomek halev, from the depths of the heart. When I began this year, I told you that when I began preparing the shiur, I thought I was just following wherever the text was going to go. But when I got here, 
I realized that something else was driving me the entire time without even realizing it. There were two incidents this week where my first attempt at having a conversation that I wanted Nina to have failed. I won't go into detail, but they failed. It was a delicate interaction and it didn't work. And it's easy when you have an interaction that didn't work to assume that the reason why it didn't work is because of them, whoever the them are. They weren't listening. They weren't open to it. They, they, they weren't, didn't respond the right way. And each time I had a period of time in between the first one, and the second time to, as the Christians might say, but the Jews should say it also, I prayed on it. I prayed on how those interactions went. And, and at some point in the davening, I went from my frustration with how they handled it to asking myself, well, how did I handle it? And could I have handled it differently? Was I a little bit too much milchama and not enough piyus? A little too much going with my muscles flexed and not enough appeasement. So I read the Midrash as a trio that are interwoven. Sometimes we approach a situation assuming that strength is what's required. When it fails, we pull back ideally and ask ourselves in a prayerful moment, what is really what's required? And maybe we can come back a second time with piyus, with appeasement, with a softness that might produce a different result. Not every situation deserves appeasement, certainly geopolitically, right? Interpersonally, most times, pius, appeasement, softness works better than milchama. And both these encounters happened before I started preparing this class Friday morning. And both of them ended up okay. And they ended up okay, not because the other one had done something wrong and, and re- recognized it, but because I realized that I was a Judah doing Hagashah, doing approach with Milchama, when what the situation needed was, was Pius, and I wouldn't have gotten there without Tefillah. And then I started preparing for this class, and this is where it led me. So sometimes we teach Torah, and sometimes the Torah teaches us. And if you have an encounter this week where you notice it didn't go the way it was supposed to, ask yourself, were my muscles flexed a little bit too much? Pray on it a bit formally or informally, and maybe you'll find a softer voice that will lead to a better conclusion. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.